So welcome everybody to From Rock Bottom to Badass. And today I have my new friend, Derek. And so I'm gonna let him introduce himself to you guys. Derek, who are you? Hello everybody. Uh, so yes, my name is Derek Mishu and uh, I live in the Memphis, Tennessee area. And I am a, a recovering alcoholic and <clears throat> Rachel, through a Facebook group looking for a guest on my channel. Um, and we just recorded yesterday and went well. So now I'm on her podcast. And, uh, you know, I wanted her story. And then now Rachel's been nice enough to invite me on her platform to get my story. So I'm glad to be here. Thanks, Rachel. You're welcome. So let's dive a little bit deeper into the identity of you. What kind of things? can you put after the words I am that are true about you? I am uh, anxious. I am honest. I am hardworking. Um, I am an entrepreneur. Uh, I think you can relate to that, Rachel. Um, <laughs> I try to be fun. <laughs> you you are definitely. fun. I'm definitely goofy. Uh, I'm a single full-time dad of a 13-year-old girl, so Goofy is my middle name. And uh, so there you go. I am a father. Mm -hmm. uh, I am from Maine originally. Uh, I am sitting in my living room. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I don't want to, you know, I can say a lot right. of different things. But that's a neat, I, I like that approach, asking someone like that. It's cool. Yeah, I think it's powerful what people choose to put after those words. And it just says a lot about who we are. So are you ready for the big one? Well, let's go. Why waste Derek, any time? <laughs> what, what on earth have you been through? So I um, grew up, I noticed when I said I am anxiety or anxiousness, I said I am anxious. Came up first. So notice when you asked me, you know, I am what? You know, the first thing I said was, now, I'm not anxious now. I'm actually rather comfortable. But anxiety is my number one killer for me that I suffered with at a very young age. You know, and I, because I know your story now, Rachel, we can relate in the sense that the anxiety is what drove the addiction in a big way. <clears throat> of course, the byproduct of that is depression, which I have my fair share of. Yeah. Uh, but, and I grew up in a very intense household that was abusive, mostly verbally, a lot of yelling and fighting and <laughs> between my mom and grandparents and just all, a lot of chaos in my childhood, only child, very young mother uh, who was an alcoholic. <clears throat> um and it just was a very anxious environment in a big way so that from from birth that was just molded me you know and ingrained that anxiety in me <clears throat> but at the time i didn't know what the word anxiety was you know i just a very shy kid uh socially especially and you know and that's just the kind of kid i was well of course you know you become a teenager and start hanging out with friends and you have your first beer right 
And I did a video on the, about this on my channel where in retrospect, I can look at that one day and realize, oh yeah, I was an alcoholic immediately because um, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll go deeper in this story because it's the first, right? Yeah. So I, I'm with my, I'm with some friends and we're at a little party and, you know, me and a couple of friends are the younger ones. And then there's older people at the party that have the beer, right? And they're the ones that, they're not even 21 yet, but they knew the person to, to buy the stuff for them. Yeah. And, and I was given, I was given two beers and I was like, all right. Um, and instantly just loved it. Uh, it made me feel chill. Well, when I look back on it, I remember this. I remember that I had my two beers done before my buddies were even halfway through their first one, you know? So Okay, that's why I ended up being a binge drinker and, uh, and falling into place with being a binge drinker. It makes sense now. And then, and anyone that has any kind of addiction, whether it's alcohol or, you know, drugs, you know, especially you know, I had a small history with cocaine. And when you run out, man, it's hell on earth because you're out and, and it's such a crappy feeling. So I can look back at my 14 year old self and I was, pissed off i was anxious i was bummed i was all the emotions you feel when i ran out and begged my older buddy for one more beer and he finally gave me one just to shut me up <clears throat> so i look back on that i was like yeah well there you go that says it all right there right yeah and, um but a typical teenager where i would party you know we'd have our parties and the drinking really didn't become a problem well, honestly, it became ugly in my in my 30s, but I was just the, the party guy, Frank the Tank, if you will. Like <laughs> I I could out drink everybody and and I'm the last one standing. And that was just kind of how I was, especially through my 20s. And now going out on the weekends, um, it was uh, it was just a lot of partying going on. But um, but yeah, and then it, it carries into my adulthood. We can get to that point too, but I don't know if you had a follow-up or anything. Yeah, no, everything that you've been through. Awesome. So, that story. Um, so I, I am a musician. So we'll do the I am thing. So it's a big player in this because uh, I started playing when I was 13. Uh, my grandfather is one that taught me some guitar some chords and stuff i grew up with my grandparents going back to having a young mom and lived with my grandparents anyway so uh, i get into it and then i start playing bass guitar when i'm 16 years old because my cousin had a band and i was jealous and i wanted to be in the band and, yeah. his, and his bass player was older and he graduated high school before everyone else so i became a bass player just to be in the band i was like i'll play bass i don't care yeah. well this really comes into place year 2000, 2001. I decide I want to do this for a living, which is a grand statement to make when you're that young. But I've, I knew I wanted to earn money doing it. I wanted to play in bands that played bars and clubs and weddings and make some money yeah. doing it. So, <clears throat> so, so began the 20 year carrot chase, right? <laughs> but um, I was good at it. I was, I was blessed with, you know, good ears so I can learn songs by just listening to them. So I, I've became a musician. 
started working in bands and be, that became my number one focus and all my other jobs to help supplement the income came second. Those were all secondary. Um, just for the sake of having the flexibility to be able to be a musician. Well, I get to a point in my life, I'm 27 years old and I decide to move to Nashville. Uh, and I do. I move to Nashville because that's where you go, right? If you want to, the joke I say is you don't move to Nebraska to start a music career. Yeah. You, Nashville you is it. Right. If you want to grow, place. you want to grow corn. Nebraska is all about that, right? So, <laughs> so, so me and a buddy move, and um, by this time, by this time, my drinking is still just a binge drinker, and you know, especially on the weekends, and hitting, you know, hitting it hard once in a while on a weeknight, you know, but um, and smoking, smoking a lot of pot, so. So I get to Nashville in October of '05 start waiting tables at an Applebee's and quickly realize the entire wait staff's on cocaine. Oh shit. Or Xanax or lower tabs or oxys. Everyone's they were fucked, fucked up. Because <laughs> everyone's in their own little circles and hush 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 this, that and the other thing. And then I start getting to know everyone and they're doing blow in the bathroom. I mean, it's just like, I was like, I was like, I want in. I, like, I want, I want, I want Difference in on between this. an addict and a non-addict. <laughs> the addict is like, I want in. And the non-addict's like, I got to get out of here. <laughs> no, I want in. I felt like, you know, FOMO, fear of missing out. Yeah. <clears throat> I done coke once years prior to this, just once and liked it um but now i'm like i want some you know so i started like i just threw myself in that circle and i was a prime candidate because i'm still just a you know just a traveling wilbury you know like let's party you know, i'm all about it so so began my you know 18 month love affair with cocaine as i call it and still my favorite thing like looking back on it leading up to this through my 20s i did acid i did ecstasy i did mushrooms smoked tons of weed you know i did it all right but it was all just like in moments i didn't become addicted to acid i don't i don't suggest anyone getting addicted to that shit <laughs> yeah. yeah melt your brain but alcohol was my thing well now cocaine becomes my thing and i love it because of the sensation and uh, I don't want to trigger anyone. Right. I want to put that in the front here. I don't want me to trigger anyone here, but just the act of doing it and it made me so I could drink more. How, how special was that? Right. You know, I can stay up longer now. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so there's that. Well, while this is happening, I end up getting a, a real job as a musician. I, I start touring in a casino variety band where we play casinos like 45 weeks out of the year, travel the country, oh. live in hotels, you know, and now, now I'm just thrusted in the world of party. <laughs> I'm living in casinos. Yeah. I'm living in casinos. Um, 
I can honestly say this. I never did or took cocaine with me. I never did it on the road. I never took it with me. Yeah. Uh, but I made up for that with a lot of drinking. Now I'm drinking seven nights a week. You know, it's, you know, you play your set. It's 11, maybe midnight in a casino that serves alcohol 24 seven. Yeah. I'm in heaven. What are you talking about? You know, but now um, coming home off being on the road for like a month with a little bit of cake, you know, a little bit of cheese in the wallet, some, some, some cash. And I'm calling my connections two hours out, you know, and, and I have like two weeks off. So now I have a two week break before I go on the road again. So I have money and time. Uh -oh. Not a good, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Not a good, uh, not a good mixture. So that's when the cocaine problem got really bad because it went from, buying a little bit here and just going out for the night to, you know, buying large amounts. And I'm not, I was not the one to save some for later. If you know what I mean? Like it was, I got it. I'm doing it. So that's when I started doing the, you know, up for three day bullshit and continuing to drink. And, um, it was always like another phone call in the middle of the night to get more, you know? So, uh, but, I can't remember the exact moment or how it all happened, but eventually, thankfully, I was like, you know, I'm done with this shit. The alcohol was always there, but I, I detached from that group of people. I wasn't working with them anymore. Um, it was affecting my my gig because what would happen is going right, to well, that more. How did how did it all affect you? Right? How did going through all of these things change you as a person? Like from who you were before. I know you were young. Yeah, you started so, drinking. It, yeah, I started drinking. You know, the cocaine made social. I should probably add, and that was the other factor in it. Because being a more introverted person, alcohol helps you open up, right? But now cocaine made me confident. I, I was like, I felt normal. Yeah. Um, you know, but then running out and coming down again. I don't want to trigger people, but god damn it sucks so then depression was worse paranoia was worse um just my physical health worse i mean staying up for three days on a diet of cocaine and beer you know that doesn't do well <laughs> for yeah. your system so um uh and, and it was it was a vicious cycle. So I'd come home for a break and have some good money. And by the end of my break, I'd have no money left and be just, just exhausted. Plenty of times I would end a binge and then not sleep and then just go meet the band and get in the van, and hit the road. So now I'm traveling from Nashville to Denver in a van after being up for three days. And, you know, and it was just, awful it was just miserable i felt like shit my attitude sucked you know it caused problems so uh i eventually just walked away from that i was able to just get away from the people that was that was the key just get away from the availability as much as possible um but the drinking continued <laughs> for sure what was the and so you say you don't know why like there was no like one triggering moment that was like 
okay, now I've gone too far. Like now I'm done. You just what got tired? Yeah. You know, I have a pivotal moment with my drinking story, but I can't, when I look back on it, I can't think of that one moment where I said I was done. Every time I woke up from that 13 hour sleep and with a bloody nose in the shower, I was done. Yeah. I'm fuck this shit. I'm done. Uh, but then, you know, two days later, another cycle and that's how I operated. Um, but yeah, eventually I, I, I think I just felt like it was time. I got tired of it. I wasn't, you know, so I wish I had a pivotal story for that, but I honestly don't, which is a blessing that I was able to just kind of walk away from that stuff. Um, what do you think kept you sane or like kept you like surviving <laughs> emotionally and stuff like throughout those experiences? You know, well, it was nice as much as it sucks sometimes going back on the road, strung out, broke, um, the four months or sometimes six, not four months, the four weeks, sometimes six weeks that I'd be on the road. Remember I said, I never took it with me. I never did it out there. I never saw, it was like, get me out of Nashville. Get me the fuck out of this place. And, and, and I always had those moments of detach. Yeah. I think if I, now I'm saying, as I'm saying this out loud, that was probably a big factor. I was able to, I had these pockets of time where I was like, I'm out, peace. Like, mm -hmm. not only am I not around the drug, but I'm away from those people. I'm positive if I would have tried, I could have found it. Out yeah. there. But I didn't. Yeah. I, you know, I, I was, it, it was always some comfort of running away. I was escaping. So after, you know, four, six weeks of not doing it, then I'd be like all clear and, 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 you know, feeling strong and then, you know, hooking up the deal as soon as I get home. <laughs> so, um, but, uh, but yeah, so I think that might've had a factor in that. For sure. Yeah. yeah. So can you move into like the recovery part and the spiritual part of your journey? How did it start getting better? Well, the alcohol continues for quite some time after this, you know, um, so I, the, one of the, one of the things that's kind of pivotal in my whole life to where I'm not at now is, you know, I'm living in Nashville, but there's a lot of casinos in Tunica, Mississippi, which is just south of Memphis, where I'm at now. And look, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't chasing cocaine, but I was chasing booze and women. Right. And when I was out on the road, so being out here was on the road at the time and met a woman and we, we did what we did <laughs> and I did what we did and we do what we do out there on the road. And, um, I was, I was that guy. I was that musician that musicians are so terrified to become and that is the guy that gets a call and oh by the way you're a father oh. i was that guy i was that guy um yeah it wasn't a knock on the door and here's your baby it was a call it says you need you need a dna test so <laughs> oh wow yeah so total blessing though you know um 
So I did it, and yep, woo, father of a girl, and uh, and hadn't met her. She was eleven week, eleven months old when I found out. Oh. Yeah. So I bring this up because this is really when. Okay, dude. Like, what are you gonna do? You know, my dad bolted when I was two years old. You know, and uh, I didn't want to do that. As terrified as I was, uh, I, I'm not being that guy. So, you know, I, I went all in as far as I could because I'm here. I am living in Nashville, traveling musician. I got this career. My daughter lives three and a half hours west of me in Memphis. Um, so I, I balanced that as best I could, um, going to see her on my weeks off. And then eventually the band ended, everything died down. Um, and I was at this crossroads where my job was coming to an end. And by this time I kind of like somewhat built a relationship with the mom. Cause mind you, you know, I spent two nights with them, if you know what I mean. Right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I didn't know her, Yeah, but when we started co-parenting uh, with each other as best we could, then there was something there, but that shit crazy. And I had, you know, I really had no reason to try to start with something with her, but I felt like it was the right thing to do. And I moved. So I, not only did I move to Memphis to be with my daughter, I moved in with her mom. That's huge. So like over, overnight I was unemployed and a husband and not a, I didn't get married, but husband, father, unemployed, new home, new circle of friends, left all my friends in Nashville. It was like very intense. So just at least the alcohol was, whew. I mean, if I could have, if I could have just, you know, injected it into my veins, I would have, <laughs> Right. So, you know, um, so this comes into play in a big way. So the drinking gets really bad. It gets, it gets, um, uh, critical. I get out of the house after a couple of years. I can't live with this person anymore. It just never worked out, nor should it have. I, sh I really shouldn't have done that. I could have moved here to be closer to my daughter, but I shouldn't have jumped into something like that, that intensely. So I continue to get my own place. Uh, I'm a musician. I'm trying to play local bars. And then I have all these other jobs to supplement that income. And um, so the first big thing is I get a DUI in 2012. I've gotten a little fender bender and I was wasted. I was blacked out. I don't even remember. Oh, shit. I, I barely remember the night, you know, so I spent a night in jail and that, that was awful. Um, and I get a lawyer, get things set up. We start making, you know, continuing the case. So I have time to save my money for probation and just get my ducks in a row. I'm drinking and driving again in a month. Yeah. You know, it, was, it was not the wake up call that I needed. Um, so I, I, I get through all that a year later, I continue it for a year um, and finally have my court date. I spent enough money to get it expunged. The only thing I had to do was, you know, cover fines, the probation fees, obviously my lawyer. And you know, I had to cost a lot of money to get something like that expunged several, several thousand dollars. And uh, at the time I, you know, I had some jobs that were, that were feeding me well. So I was able to pay it off. So I go to probation in six months. 
it's three uh, man like mandatory uh, drug tests and alcohol tests. Um, uh, I'm like, okay, so I pay up all at the front end. So after my third test, I'm four and a half months in. So I have six weeks left. Uh, and the guy's like, look, you're paid up. You've done your tests, man. You're great. You're good to go. You know, I was like an ideal guy that just took care of the shit and they didn't have to chase me for money. You know, they let me go six weeks early. Two weeks later, I'm drinking and driving again. <laughs> See where this is going? Yeah. You know, like, it's, it's a problem. None of those things woke me up. Yeah. None of those things woke me up. Um, uh, so some time passes and the drinking becomes more weeknights. By this time, I'm working in a warehouse, uh, Pfizer Pharmaceutical Warehouse Distribution Center. So here I am now in a warehouse full of drugs. <laughs> you know, I never had fun. Oh, the irony. Right. Um, and people are coming up to me on a Wednesday. Dude, you might want to go brush your teeth or just stay away from a supervisor or something. Maybe don't come to work hungover because you stink, you know. Oh. So now I'm, I'm that guy, right? Now I'm showing up to work hungover enough where I smell I showered, yeah. but it's still, you know. So now I'm a forklift driver and I get in an accident. I, I hit a rack and I dented it pretty good. You know, I got in a legit accident. I, I was totally sober. There was no issue with that. But because of that, you know, with such a being a, like a big corporate um, company, the, you know, mandatory drug tests. You, you crash into something, they got to test you. you know? mm -hmm. So this happens on a Friday at four o'clock. This place I'm supposed to test at is closed. So they're like, you'll have to do a drug test on Monday. I'm like, all right. But I'm thinking, well, what really sucks about that is I have my close friends in Nashville that are still in a band coming to Tunica to play at a casino called the Gold Strike Casino. And I had plans to go out and see him Sunday night. And I'm like, well, shit, you know, like I'm supposed to get like a test on Monday morning. I don't want to show up hungover and test positive for alcohol, even though what's weird is, let's say I did test positive for alcohol on Monday. That doesn't mean that I was drinking on Friday. Right. Yeah. That's what I was thinking. Like, you're allowed to drink on the weekend anyhow. <laughs> right. But in my mind, it, it, it totally, it's a total, you know, party kill buzz kill for me um yeah, worry about it so i'm worried about it and i like you should do the right thing and not drink and but you want to go see your friends so as a you know as a typical alcoholic does i'll still go and i'll behave i'll just have a few drinks say hello and roll out well yeah right <laughs> so, so that anxiety fuels more drinking, which fuels more anxiety, which fuels more drinking. So I'm out partying. Next thing I know, it's three in the morning. I'm playing blackjack with my friends, you know, and I'm supposed to be in order for me to get to work on time from where I'm staying. I got to get up at like six, you know, so here it is three in the morning and I'm obviously not going to drive. I say, obviously, but <laughs> I, I decided to not drive that night. And I crashed on my buddy's hotel room floor. And that was like the lowest moment. I'm like, 
Dude, you're in trouble at work. You're wasted, hungover, or you're drunk on the floor of a casino hotel room. And you're going to have to call out of work again. Not only are you calling out of work, but now you're dodging this drug test that you're supposed to take. And man, my world just collapsed around me. This yeah. is the pivot. This is the pivotal moment. Yeah. Um, and it was miserable. I called out, just laying there and just like, what are you doing with your life? What are you doing? Buddy wakes up and they were done. The band was leaving. They're all leaving. So he leaves the hotel room at like 10 o'clock. Hey man, the room's good till noon. You can hang here if you want. All right, man. Love you, buddy. See you later. You know, sat by the guys for me and, and I plan on just chilling in the room. Well, as soon as he shut that door and I was alone, the walls caved in on me. And by this time, I've I knew I knew all well about depression and I still do. But this was when, you know, the suicidal thoughts start trickling in. And I'd already had them for years. But it's a little serious at this point. I just know something's different. Yeah. And it freaks me out enough to call my therapist. So by this time, I'd been seeing the same guy for a couple of years um, and texted him, man, I need to come in today. Can I talk to you? He's like, are you okay? I'm like, not really. He's like, all right, come in at noon. So the man gave me his lunch break. Um, so I keep it together, you know, I'm smoking, I'm chain smoking, yeah. <laughs> but I'm, I'm, I feel like, okay, I'm, I'm not at work. That part is over with. I, I know I'm going to my therapist. So that's making me feel a little better. So I'm like, all right, I'm, I'm kind of calming down a little bit, even though the panic is still pretty high. I finally get in his office. I sit in front of him and he's like, man, what's, what's bothering you? And then the floodgates open, you know, like yeah, the, the stereotypical, you know, nervous breakdown where snot's coming out of your eyeballs. Right? <laughs> like, you I know, have like, one of those. I relate to that. I know what you're talking about. Yeah. I mean, it's just all <laughs> full on. Can't control yourself. I'd never experienced that then, before then or since. Yeah. You know, that was, you know. So obviously my therapist is like, okay. Uh, he's like, I got two questions for you. Have you had suicidal thoughts? Yes. Okay. Uh, would you agree to go to uh, a uh, facility? Yes. Yeah. And I'm like, take me away. Like, I'm ready to go. I'm ready to go away. I want to get away from all of this. All the stress about dealing with, you know, my daughter's mom. You know, I'm not going to bury my daughter's mom and get into all that but there was a lot of problems there there's work there's depression my anxiety miserable in life and i was like please just take me away <laughs> so he he called, he called the place they had an available bed it was a place called parkwood in um olive branch mississippi and uh so this this guy my therapist takes my keys and drives me there and then his wife follows us so then he can get a ride back. So he's going to, so when they admitted me, you know, he gave them my keys. So that way my car would be there. What a when I, Very was. cool. Very, very cool. cool. So, and then 
you know, uh, that's the beginning of my 11 week rehab um, story. So, so yeah, <laughs> uh, that happened. Uh, I went into rehab on May 19th, 2014 and haven't drank since. Congratulations. Yeah. <laughs> the story continues though. Anyone that is familiar with rehab, you know, that's a whole other, whole other story there, you know, as far as what that experience is like. Give us some of the key points you learned and what you took away from that experience. Was there a spiritual aspect to your recovery as well? Um, no, you know, I, it was, uh, I'm this, I'm a math head, you know, uh, I'm, um, a more math head, not meth head, right? No, <laughs> I need to choose my words better than that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, no. Just cocaine, I, not meth. <laughs> luckily, I luckily I didn't discover that stuff or was around it because I would have tried it. But um, but uh, so you're logical. A, you're logical. I'm a, yeah, like I'm analytical, logical. So I, that's how I make sense of things. You know, mm -hmm. um, so so when I look back on my uh, my rehab so i was inpatient for two weeks and that was an adjustment you know and i went into a more strict kind of place it was not a it was not a day camp you know it was it wasn't jail but you know you, you're you're in a tank with a bunch of people all day and you can't go to your room and you gotta ask permission to go take a piss and you gotta you know, you, you, they take your shoelaces and, you know, you take your belt and, you know, um, all those things, you know, allowed to have a pencil mm -hmm. or a pen. They take your belly so button they, ring. Oh, wait, now we're talking about my story. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> they, let me, they let me keep mine. That's oh, cool. they did. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, um, but look, make, looking back on it, it makes sense. What they're, well, A, they're taking your things from you that could hurt somebody right uh but also they're stripping you of all responsibilities that they're making it so they make all the decisions they line you up for lunch like you're in fucking elementary school they line you up for your meds so you go to your little counter and they give you your cup you know the drill and anyone mm -hmm. listening but they're doing that to just get that baseline where's this person's baseline we're going to strip them of all responsibilities minus just not fucking killing someone on the inside you know so that's enough to have to worry about though. <laughs> yeah, you know, but so it was it was it was a weird thing and you know, you're dealing with a lot of interesting people, <laughs> you know, to say the least. Um so this is the story becomes a little unflattering because Again, here I am trying to do the right thing and, and learn from mistakes, but I still make a silly decision because I end up bonding with a woman in rehab and she got out first and then I got out after her and within a week she's living with me. Come on, really? You know, and, You're not and they, the, the first or the only the they preach that like do not build relationships with anyone in here when you're done in here go you know 
do not call these people. Like you're in here for a reason for yourself. You need to be selfish right now. This in your world, it's all about you right now. Work on you, you know. And I didn't. And I and I I guess I was vulnerable because I wanted to help. You know, she was she was what she was. <laughs> um, I think she targeted me in a weird way. I don't want to sound disrespectful, but I felt a little bit of that. Like she kind of preyed on me a little bit. Like she, this guy can probably take care of me out of here. You know, subconsciously we attract, we can, but we find what we want. Right. Well, and it goes both ways. I'm not making it like a, a gender thing, but, um, so hook, line and sinker. Right. So, and, uh, imagine what that relationship was like, right. Like nice and healthy. No. <laughs> so and and it was really for as all rehab relationships are yeah yeah it was really there for one reason let's be real here um and then of course she's drinking and doing her drugs immediately she I mean she falls off the wagon and she's causing problems at the house i'm like dude what are you doing come on man get it together so you gotta go got you know i i I uh, solved that problem. I was like, try to find a place to go in a week. You got to be out of here. Mm-hmm. And I took care of that. So I wasn't taking care of myself. Um, by this time, I'm on uh, three medications. I'm on Lamictal. That is a mood stabilizer. Lexapro. I think everyone knows Lexapro. Antidepressant. And lithium. <laughs> on lithium they they diagnosed me bipolar too you know so there's that whole process but uh so i didn't work on myself i I allowed that to creep into my life which just kind of screwed me up a little bit and i'm over medicated i'm just yeah that's a lot of powerful drugs at once uh i'm just staring at the wall you know like i'm definitely that guy just drooling on himself you know and i was miserable all the side effects I come along with that, you know, it's just, I was not feeling right. Well, during this time, I'm an outpatient. So I have to go every day to the building next to the inpatient where you have like three hours a day of therapy, group therapy, you know, uh, but now you're allowed to go home. And, but, and luckily I might have to add, like, because I'm working at the big warehouse, luckily I have short-term disability I have good insurance at this point, thank God. So I don't have that to worry about. So I can do these things and not worry about paying my bills. So that's that's awesome. But um, as you all know, as anyone knows, you know, I forget the real term. It's when you when you first start, you fill out the paper, right? Like your mood, one to ten, any suicidal thoughts, any thoughts of harming yourself. Yeah. You know, you like fill out the assessment or an evaluation or something. It's, they call it processing or whatever, you know, every, every day you do this thing. And one day I was just honest on it. I was like, dude, you're having suicidal thoughts again. You know, this is the place to be honest. Yeah. This is, this is where you're supposed to say these things. And, 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 uh, so I just wrote down a thought I had, I go into the group therapy and I'm just sitting there and someone walks in, uh, Derek, can I speak with you for a minute? I was like, sure. And I pull out and he's like, um, she, like, uh, I need your keys. 
like why she's like we have to put you back in patient it's like okay (laughs) here we go again you just fully surrendered to the process at this point you're like whatever these people tell me to do it's like just oh yeah 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 i'm listening which is such a spiritual aspect really you know to just allow that's huge yeah so yeah you know and yeah by this time i'm um I'm broken in. You tell me to jump, I'm jumping. Plus, I had no choice. They, if I would have fought it, they probably would have called the police. You know, because, you know, I admitted to suicidal thoughts. You know, in a facility like that, they have two options: admit you or call the police. You know, they can't let someone just drive off with that. You know, so. Uh, but I'm cool. I'm like, all right. Let's do it. And she literally walked me down the hill to the inpatient and I had to do it all over again. But this is where it changed for me. I needed it so bad uh, because I get in there. Now I'm ready for some fucking business. I'm ready to get some shit done. You know, I'm not doing this again. Yeah. No, no, I'm not doing this again. I'm not fucking around with anybody. I'll be friendly. I'll play dominoes. You know, you know, you know, I'll, I'll share my cigarettes, but, um, no, I'm done with this shit. And then, and then now I've seen what, how it works. So now on my days when I get to see the, the doctor for meds or all the different plans, now I'm in a way kind of calling the shots a little bit. I'm like, I want to get off this shit. Like one of these things is no. All these, I'm on these drugs and this is how it's making me feel. And it's part of the reason why I'm back in here. And I was like, the lithium has got to go away. Like I'm done with that. It was, you know, it's just, there's benefit to it. And it's actually, it does a lot of good for people, but it was over the top for me. Like I just, and he's like, okay. <laughs> so I went in ready to work. Yeah. And empowered. It's like, well, I mean, ready to take can take charge of your life in a good way yeah i, I felt like there's no other choice because i was like i'm not doing this again yeah i'm not doing this again so um so that inpatient lasted eight nine days and i was even I, like there was moments in group therapy when people were just weren't paying attention and you know that was the other problem with rehab is the majority of the people in there were forced to be in there whether it's family tossing them in or the government tossing them in yeah and they don't they don't give a shit they're not in there to work it's a different vibe so uh, so this second time i'm i'm there to work and i became you know a couple times i had to speak up and i was like guys you know what are we doing here i'm like this is my second time in here i fucked off my i guarantee you you don't want to come in a second time yeah you know like get it together you know um so I did. what'd you learn like what was well, it that what are the things that you got out of it that helped you change you know i think just being able to talk all my shit out um in many different ways whether it's the one-on-one therapy or the group stuff and just getting drilled in your head like like this is your time to be selfish. Like it's you, mm-hmm. but also you're accountable. 
this is like no one you can't control what people think of you you can't control what people say the only thing you can control is how you react mm-hmm. you know you can only can control yourself so it was like accountability they're drilling in your head um but also like fuck everybody else you know anyone that triggers you anyone that's in your life that is a trigger or is is not going to be in line with this change for you yes then they're not for you anymore yeah and it's okay it's okay to be done with them you know so it's you know it's reassuring so those all kind of bundled up but also i think i'm just finally fed up with myself too i'm like i'm done with this shit (laughs) you know so then i go back to the outpatient and you know more focused doing better getting off some of the meds definitely helped it just kind of like decompressed me a little bit right all this bipolar Mm -hmm. medicine just like squashes you you know um so then i'm like well what are you going to do when this is done like part of the therapy now in this phase for me in this outpatient phase is you know you got to do what you want to do what do you love like you need to make yourself happy no one else is going to make you happy yeah you can't get married hoping the spouse makes you can't be in a relationship you have to be happy what your core you need to work on your core so i'm like well what makes me happy well being a musician makes me happy so i kept thinking about it and i'm like you know i have to i have to i have to make a switch now i ha- this is the time to make the change so i decide that when I'm done with therapy, with the program at the end of the 11 weeks, when I go back to work, I'm going to give my two week notice and connect with my, Oh, by this time I'd already connected with one of my Nashville bands and contacts. And I'm going to go back on the road (laughs) where I'm going to surround myself with alcohol. Yay. Right. Stupid. But I never drank. I never drank again and and found this balance of doing what i love playing in multiple bands you know road couple a couple little bands that hit me on the road you know you go off for a weekend you come back i'm not leaving weeks anymore you know so i'd get my butt to nashville meet up with my band go play wisconsin come home and i go back to memphis then i have a week i was driving uber driving lyft you know hosting trivia nights and restaurants so i was just one year i had like 10 w9s for taxes you know it was just i was a side hustle machine yeah (laughs) but again it all goes back to you now music's priority number one well 1a my daughter skylar's number one but but for the sake of being able to do that i do these other jobs and and um and just manage to balance all of that out and again this is a pivotal moment the going to my therapist going to rehab the whole thing but i don't really know what really caused the trigger to to put the light switch down and make it so i never drank again but it worked something something in that process in those 11 weeks clicked with me and now i'm going to be eight years sober in may you know and it's you know what i think that's Okay. And I think that's like the type of story that we don't hear enough of is 
Um, I kept going. I kept trying repetition, consistency, people saying the same things over and over again, me finally getting a little piece here and a little piece there and a little piece there and all of that collectively adding up to create what worked for me, right? Yeah. Because I think a lot of times like we hear stories that are like mine where it was like, I had a freaking spiritual awakening and everything changed, right? Which mine is like the least common story. And then people think that if theirs didn't happen like mine, that 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 something was wrong with their recovery or that, you know, it'll never work for them because they're not having this major like one epiphany moment that's changing everything at one time. And that's majority not how it is for anybody. Like mostly it's when you're like mine, it's because you were really, really bad and about to die and God had to snatch you up. But like most people that didn't get to like the brink of death have like a much more relaxed experience where they just keep showing up and just keep going back to the therapist and just keep trying again and getting a piece and a piece and a piece. Yeah. The, you know, um, I never really became an AA type of person. You know, I don't mean to disparage it in any way. It saved billions of lives. Right. Mm-hmm. I tried and it just wasn't my thing. You know, I'm a one-on-one type of person. So I've been seeing this, the same therapist that took me to, rehab i just what's funny is i just had my weekly with him today i still see the same guy it's 10 years now but i bring that up because when it comes to aa or na you know um in they they always preach 90 and 90 90 90 um 90 visits in 90 days you know uh they encourage that because it's it's the going back Mm -hmm. it's it's the repetition it's that rhythm. It's the building the habit. Yeah. Uh, and that's why they say 90 and 90. It's like, that's three months of going to AA every day, hearing other people's stories, telling your story. You know, my choice was the therapist that worked for me, but look, I'm still going back 10 years later. So that's part of it too. Uh, it gives me that platform every week to just, you know, talk about the stresses, you know, um so yeah if anyone's listening or watching this that's kind of in the early stages whatever you whatever you feel is your best way to get your therapy stick with it <laughs> make it part of your life you know you can't go to therapy and you're not fixed in three weeks you know you're not going you're not going to the doctor with a with a with a broken finger and they put a splint on it and it eventually heals you know, this is something we live with for the rest of our life. So it's important to stand up and have that, that outlet. Yes, it is. So when, when along your journey, did you acquire any like favorite quotes, sayings or mottos or mantras mm. that you kind of used it with that same premise of like repetition that you would just say over and over to yourself to like keep you going? I used to know the prayer. You know, give me the strength to control what I can control, not what others, not try to control others. I, I'm, I'm butchering it. I, well, I bet I'm you know. the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference just for today. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> now, has it, no, it's not a mantra, mantra like it is for you, and I butchered it, but it makes so much sense. You know, you got from it, it though. Yeah, it, it's, again, it goes back to the rehab, like, hey, 
like you can't control what people say you can only control your reactions you know so focus on what you can control um and then the third one's that that's the key is having that self-awareness and wisdom to see it and you know i think that also helped me too to truly see my like how i had some codependency mixed in with all this you know i, I cared too much about what people thought of me uh, I was always worried about people, what people thought of me, you know, insecurities, the whole thing. So finally, I guess, I, you know, I gained that wisdom to know, like, there's, there's no reason to worry about other people and what they think of you, you know. Um, but so, yeah, you know, it's all these years later, you know, now. For any, I, I, you know, in case anyone's listening or watching again that I can speak to alcohol, you know, and, and you just quit and you're struggling with that, you know, don't expect, it's not a fairy tale overnight. You know, I learned the hard way in a way where I felt like, Oh, I quit drinking. So my life is going to be amazing. You got to work at it. You got to keep working at it. And that first year or two, you're just trying to figure out how to cope. You're trying to use tools that have been given to you to try to cope with all right well i walked out of rehab and i was sensitive i was still just as anxious as ever still dealing with my depression mm-hmm. all the problems all those all those problems are still there you know reality kicks back in you know none of that changes life moves on how are you going to cope with it but i promise you if you're fighting you keep going back and uh after that two-year mark for me was when i was like that's when my growth started. I had more confidence to try different things. And then my personal story is, you know, I ended up starting my own business, you know, and none of this is, and now I have a successful podcast production agency that's three years old, you know, God, there's a million stories about that. But the point of the story is none of what I have now exists without what happened seven plus years ago, you know, but you want this, like I wanted this seven years ago. Yeah. And it took me a minute to, to realize, no, it takes work. You know, I had a great core of friends. Those are the ones I could trust, even though they still drank, I had to teach myself, well, they're not going to change their life for you. Yeah. If we're all out at dinner and they want to have a beer, they're grown men. They can have a damn beer if they want. Right. So cope with being around it, but don't feel like you're being disrespected. Like I used to take it personal. Mm-hmm. How dare they drink around me? And I look back on that and I, I tell that guy to fuck off. Like, no, it's there. <laughs> right. You know, we all get you know, choice. Yeah. If, if, if there was someone in my life at that time that would drink around me, but then get in my face and try to that I should have a beer with them. Fuck right. you. That, yeah. That's disrespectful. You're the one that goes away. You're the one that I'm, I'm cutting off, you know, but um, so it was those vulnerabilities and those sensitivities that I dealt with. And then, uh, but, you know, that all just starts going away. You keep going back and trying to and get better at it. 100%. So where are you yeah. going from here? What do you think is next for you in your journey? I want to buy a house, you know, I'm, I'm, getting to a place now where I'm earning enough income where that could be a reality. Um, 
I'm trying to clear off some debt before doing that. So, uh, you know, you know, I still have debt that probably dates back from when I'm 18, right? <laughs> it's an exact I, I just got hit with that student loan debt now that I yeah, yeah, have a degree I mean, finally. Oof. You know, that whole part of my life where I was the hustle machine and working all these different jobs, that's all well and good, but it's it's hand to mouth, feast famine, and a big chunk of old credit card debt that I've consolidated you know two times around was life it's like i'm barely scraping by oh shit i need new brakes damn it credit card you know and yeah. type of stuff that build up on me so i'm trying to clear that up i made like That's a real a, such a huge part of recovery that i don't think gets talked about enough that literally like anybody who struggled with mental health or addiction or anything you get in your financial situation is effed up yeah. when you finally get back to reality and now you're like holy crap now i have to pay for like all of the manic shopping or the you know drinking binges yeah. at three in the morning where i decided to buy everybody around or like just dumb decisions that you made under the influence yeah. and it I just wish, wrecks your I credit wish, i wish i could get the seven thousand dollars i spent for my dui right now that'd be nice that would pay that would pay off my debt right yeah <laughs> you know, so so, but, 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 um, yeah, continuing my business, continuing it to grow. Um, and, um, you know, I'm a, you know, just recently last year and a half or so I became full custody of my daughter. So now it's, that's, that's a whole other episode, Rachel, but, um, yeah. uh, but, uh, so now, you know, I moved to a good place that has a good school. So now my focus is getting her through high school. She's in eighth grade now. So. Like, okay, dedicated to that. I'm off the road. I don't play music anymore. I actually kind of retired yeah. in a way. Uh, there's no pension when you're a musician, but, no. you know, it's basically just like, you know, what, I'm hanging it up for a while. I don't, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm in a place where I don't need it for income. So that was nice. So, so I'm a businessman now trying to grow it. I'd love to just get a nice house and just kind of, you know, start building that future because I'm just throwing money away with renting apartments, you know, all my life. So that would be the, I guess, growing up more, you know, I'm 44 years old and I'm finally in a, my early mature thirties. You know what I'm saying? Like I, I, I kind of fell behind a little bit, but when I was 30, I was going on 17. Yeah. That's how you know, I was an idiot when I was 30. <laughs> That's all of us though, you know, emotionally stunted. And then when we get, start to get better, we have to, you know, kind of play the catch up game and that's all right. Um, I think that it's awesome. All you've been through and all you've overcame and how you got there and your persistence and your honesty. I think that it's so brave and vulnerable to talk about suicidal um, thoughts and suicidal ideation as part of our stories. I talk about that frequently because it needs to be said. People need to hear it. People feel like they're the only one who's ever thought about suicide when, right. and it feels so lonely and dark and you're just not, you know, people, <laughs> we are, you're not the only one. Life is hard. This human condition is hard. And then when you stack mental illnesses and addictions and traumas and all these things on top of it, like suicidal ideation is um one of the normal consequences of that so yeah talk about it talk about it with your therapist like 
get help, medications help, therapies help. There is things to do to get better. And I, I still have it. I still yeah. have that to this day. It's it's like my boogeyman. Mm -hmm. I call it. It's just that thought that creeps in when I'm down and low, and that's why I keep going back because I never want to. I never want to put myself in a vulnerable situation where, uh, you know, where I'm susceptible more than other days, whatever, you know, like sometimes if you'd stop going back, then these things can kind of creep in without even realizing it, you know? Um, but I'll say this and I don't mean this to be a shameless plug. It might sound like it, but when you talked about, moving forward well this channel that i had you on yesterday you know yeah that was the that was the next question okay, so <laughs> so that's that's morphed and and organically become that place for me to you know do my you know contribute in my way of being vulnerable open and telling my story and in ways and hope that other people can relate and help. So that's why that that was a quick turnaround for me, where I didn't have a channel. Um, I for years never wanted a channel. I didn't want to be in front of a camera. Well, because of my career in business and podcasting, I got more comfortable being in front of a camera. Mm -hmm. Decided to start. Uh, was gifted a channel um, from my mother's audience, so I, I have a, like a pretty active channel um that's monetized so i was like all right well let's have fun with it and i'm doing random videos and talking about stories on the road and not getting too personal right and then i started getting a little more personal talking about my stress talking about my anxiety and then the engagement was there and more encouragement mm -hmm. and then i was like all right well now i'm finding my place i want this channel to be about mental health and then now I just, you know, did a few videos talking about my rehab, talking about my alcoholism, getting deeper and deeper as a way to do my due diligence. I feel like now I have a responsibility. I want to help people. Um, enough years in, like you, you have a book, you have coaching, you, you have the clout and the history and, and the experience to really be able to help people. Um, so I feel is that new thing for me. So. Uh, that's why you're on it. You're my first guest. Um, and uh, and it, honestly, this is the first podcast that I'm on. To really? Get story. Yeah. Oh, cool. All we got to be each other's firsts. <laughs> you know it. All the other podcasts I've been on have been about my, you know, entrepreneurial story, which is great too. Mm -hmm. But um, so, yeah, so that's, that's a big one this year is growing that channel to, um, get more audience, try to get a younger audience. Uh, my audience is not to be sound disrespectful, but they're a little older. Mm -hmm. uh, but, the, but they engage with this because the comments I get from them is that helped me a lot, or I wish my son could hear this. We'll share yeah. it. You know, my daughter had dealt with this. I lost my grandson because of that. And everybody uh, knows somebody that struggles with addiction or mental right. illness, like everybody. Yeah. And people engage with authenticity. So that's why, Rachel, you do what you do. That's why I'm finally breaking in and making it a 2020 deal for me to grow this channel as a way to, it helps me get confidence in my life. It's just as much for me as it is what I'm hoping to help other people with. Of course. Um, but now I want to add more voices. 
you know, so that's why, you know, I, I reached out to you, Rachel, to have you on, on the channel. And I want to bring other stories in and to, you know, to give that person an opportunity to share their story, give that person an opportunity to promote their platforms. You know, yeah. you have a book. I want to talk about your book and all that stuff. Um, and, and it's so fun, isn't it? To just like hang out yeah. in on your platforms and get to have these yeah. real conversations that just like magic happens in them. I think it's so cool. Well, it's the networking part. Now, my other podcasts and all this other stuff I do for business, it's all that networking, but it's business. And it's, I can tell my business story, my entrepreneurial story. That's great. But there's always that sense of having to pitch. You kind of, you're in it for hopefully to get a new client, right? Like that's, that's why you do all that. But now I finally am building a platform for myself to network with people like yourself that, um, that are in this space that we can, you know, talk about our lives, which mm -hmm. is very interesting to me. Um, I mean, it's kind of be about pure service together. Yeah, yeah, and, and hopes to help other people um, because people relate to that vulnerability um, and authenticity. So now it's like, all right, let's let's have some fun with this. <laughs> so, so that's definitely my... I'm going to grow the channel probably before buying the house. Let's say, let's say that. <laughs> well, maybe the channel will buy your house. There you go. <laughs> there you go. I need, you, I go. need about, you said I need it's about, monetized, right? Let's. Uh, yeah, let's get another 2 million subscribers. We'll see what happens. But but no, you know, I, I have, you know, I have a channel that has reach too. So I, that's also where I felt like I had some responsibility. I'm like, all right, yeah. what are you going to do? You know, I was gifted a monetized channel in 25 days, you know, yeah, story behind that. What are you going to do with it? You know, there's, there's, there's reason to work on it. Cause I want to make some money. There is that, you know, there is that, but what are you going to use it for? You have this powerful tool. What are you going to use it for? And I'm like, well, I relate most with mental health because of my story. Like you just heard. So let's start talking about that stuff, you know, and I hope it grows, you know, right now yeah, I have them. Right now, I have almost 5,000 subscribers. Let's get it to 10. You know, anyone listening or watching this, um, you know, my name is the channel name, Derek Mishu. You know, D-E-R-R-I-C-K-M-I-C-H-A-U-D. You know, you have the link now, Rachel. So Everything will be in the description. Yeah. And you guys have to go uh, watch our interview where Derek interviews me. So you have to go and subscribe right now. Yeah. And do you have Facebook? Do you have Instagram? Do you have anywhere else, uh, email address, other places where people might be able to hook up with you? Yeah, so my Instagram is uh, Derek Mishu, and then the number one. And then I have a Facebook group that is, again, my name. Um, I haven't thought of a cool like podcast name maybe for this stuff, but um, I'm not quite as branded as you are, Rachel. You got, you got your- Very branded. <laughs> Um, but, um, but in that group, there's one, there's uh, 1700 people in there that really, again, coming from an audience that was kind of gifted to me from my mother, ironically, my mom's the YouTuber that helped me with all this. Um, but to, I'd like to grow it with a different audience, organic audience that's coming to there for, to maybe have more conversations with mental health, you know, people that want to engage in the group um so you're more than welcome to come there and hang out there and then the, the youtube channel so yeah um and then and then 
you can find my business stuff. Go to shelbyrealproductions.com. And you can see my whole business side, all my platforms over there. To get, you know, that's very much part of my personality. You learn a lot about me if you want to go see all that stuff too. Uh, but my channel is where I just put it all out there. So. And so if somebody wants help, like producing their podcast, you got them, right? Yep. Got them. All right. That's what we do. That's what we do. You know? All right. Beautiful. Thank you so much for being on the show. I had an amazing time hearing your story. I feel so super connected to you now. Um, this was awesome. Thank you for letting me be on yours. And I hope that we can do some more projects together in the future. Yeah, a collaboration with you would be super fun. Absolutely. Sweet. All right, everybody, that's been From Rock Bottom to Bad Ass. This episode is brought to you by the How to Wear a Crown course. It is vulnerable, authentic, real as fuck. Man, it's bold, expressive, heartfelt, and soul-led. I'm telling you, blood, sweat, and tears went into this course. I gave zero fucks when speaking my truth and telling my stories. It was made with the intention of having a sacred space where you can learn everything that you need to know about self-worth and be guided hand-in-hand throughout the experience. So if you want to embark on a spiritual experience of awakening your personal power, if you want to break the cycle of self-hate and toxicity in your family line, if you crave the ability to unlock your full potential and begin to create a life of your dreams, if you're ready for more, more love, more fulfillment, more money, more joy, more laughter, more dreams coming true, and more everything, if you're willing to invest in yourself and do the fucking work, if you refuse to stay stuck in internal conflict and a lackluster life for another damn second, then this journey is for you. This course is what I needed and didn't have. When I was learning how to love myself, I craved something just like this, but it didn't exist. I'm grateful to be the one that has walked this path. And now I'm honored to be delivering this content to you. And the best part is you get lifetime access to the content. It never expires. It never leaves. You can use it over and over again, forever. This is a 14 session journey guided by me, Rachel Greenwell, life and spiritual coach. It was lovingly designed to walk you through the actionable steps necessary to create an unshakable sense of self-worth that nobody and nothing can take away from you. Learn your worth, awaken your power, and unlock your potential. If you feel called, please enroll today by going to www.iamrockhell.com. That's I-A-M-R-O-C-K-L.com.